They were called the greatest show on court for a reason. In the early 2000s, the Sacramento Kings set the standard for what great teamwork and communication could accomplish. Divas on the move, lays it off to Weber capturing the hearts and minds of basketball fans around the world. And while they will be forever celebrated as one of the greatest and most entertaining teams in NBA history, one year still haunts the California capital to this day. That will do it. The Los Angeles Lakers winning here in Sacramento. Fans, front office executives, reporters, coaches, and players still wonder what could have been tortured by the memories of just how close Sacramento was to their first and only championship. Welcome back to the year that the Sacramento Kings were the best team in the NBA. Welcome back to the deafening roar of Arco Thunder. Back to Bibby, has the open shot. Welcome back to the genius of Rick Adelman's coaching. I just think that was a great series. We had a great team. I regret not getting to the next level. The steadiness of Chris Webber's leadership. Twirling move by Webber who wraps it around Sakharina. Steals to Christie for two. The silky smoothness of Peja Stojakovic's shooting stroke. Another three-pointer by Peja. He is six of nine from downtown. And the iron clasps of Doug Christie's defense. Doug Christie, the defensive player for the Kings. Getting involved. Welcome back to one of the greatest, most physical, and most heated rivalries in sports, turning the West Coast into a Northern California versus Southern California war zone. Offensive foul on Rick Fox. Oh, Christie hey. put it back in Fox's face and pushes him back again, and we have pushing and shoving between the Kings and Lakers here early. Welcome back to the joy and pain of the greatest and most terrible season in Kings history. Welcome to 2002, the three-part miniseries presented by the Locked on Kings podcast. Hello and welcome to the third and final part of 2002, the three-part miniseries, remembering the Sacramento Kings' great and terrible year. My name is Matt George. I'm a Sacramento sports radio host and multimedia journalist who has covered the Sacramento Kings for the last five seasons. If you missed parts one and two of this series, taking you through the Kings' 61-win regular season and two tough rounds of the 2002 playoffs, I strongly encourage you to pause this episode right now, go back, and listen. For over a year since being eliminated from the Western Conference semifinals by the Lakers in 2001, the Sacramento Kings craved their opportunity for revenge and redemption, longing to be the team to dethrone the two-time NBA champions. After a very successful regular season, the Kings found themselves fighting hard just to get that chance, forced to dig deep and overcome injuries in order to defeat the Utah Jazz and Dallas Mavericks. It wasn't easy, but they got the job done, and after the third-seed Los Angeles Lakers defeated the second-seed San Antonio Spurs, Sacramento finally had their rematch. Sacramento Kings television announcer Grant Napier. Yeah, you had waited 12 months to get to that point. You had the number one seed. You felt that... You know, okay, if the series goes seven, which most people thought that it would, you know, you would have home court advantage in game seven. And we know about the percentages over the years for teams on their home floor in game seven. They win something like 80 plus percent. So, yeah, the Kings felt very good. They were healthy. They were confident. They were playing their best basketball of the year. And 
the attitude was, okay, here we are, let's go get it. But this time, it was in the Western Conference Finals, uncharted territory for the Sacramento Kings, who knew that their first NBA championship was all but guaranteed if they could finally overcome L.A. There was no question. There was no team in the East, as it turned out to be, the Nets that would have won against uh, the Kings or the Lakers. So it was billed that way. I think all basketball fans across the United States knew that the winner of the Kings-Lakers series would win the NBA championship and they would win it easily. So, yeah, for all intents and purposes, the Kings and the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals really was the NBA Finals. Sacramento Kings starting shooting guard and all-NBA defender Doug Christie. We had went to New Jersey earlier in the year, and I think we beat them by 45 or something. I mean, we just absolutely demolished them. So, and that, and that was the team that was coming out of the, the East and nothing against them. It's, you know, I, I could guard Jason Kidd you know I'm bigger than he is and just as fast so he he wasn't able to dominate a game the same way he dominated in the Eastern Conference and uh, you know man for man we, we were just we were better than they were as a team so yeah that's kind of what we thought we didn't necessarily think about it if you if you understand what I'm saying it wasn't like okay let's win this guys and we're going to roll out no you, we were immersed in exactly what was going on with the Los Angeles Lakers every aspect, the film, the breakdown, everything to the point that we probably got two in our own way in game one and and we lose home court advantage immediately and then we gain our, our footing after that. Kings television analyst and former head coach Jerry Reynolds. Everybody's excited, you know, wanted the opportunity, knew they were going against a, a truly great team with two of the probably top 15 players in the history of the game on the same team. So, uh, you know, you know. To me, I think it's a case of, hey, this is what we wanted. Let's see if we can get them. Uh, don't know that. Uh, you know, they were 100% confident because until you've done it, you haven't done it. And and I think that's kind of why maybe they didn't start off as well as maybe we we thought they would. After fighting all year for home court advantage, an edge that many believed the Kings absolutely had to have if they were going to defeat the Lakers, Sacramento got caught up in the moment during the start of Game 1, and the defending champs jumped on them in the first quarter. Kobe Bryant took significant minutes against Bibby. Bryant knocks down his jumper. He's been in foul trouble in every series. He's got to keep him out on the floor, and he wants him to play inside. Fox hits the three and turns and does something for the crowd. Key for Sacramento in this series will be Keeping their poise, something they have not always done. They pick up technicals, get upset with the refs as O'Neal drops it in. Devon fell down. Fox trying to take advantage, gets it inside. And a nine-point early lead for the Lakers. In the back in Shaq. You got the fabulous athleticism. Oh, Brian, perfect pass from Rick Fox on a given go. Fox, Fisher for three. Eric Fisher, he is playing at such a high level right now. And he's got a chance for a three-point play. Fisher with a perfect pass to Kobe Bryant. Perfectly executed by this squad. And another turnover. King's starting to get very sloppy. Two on one break. And Bryant another easy basket. Corey all the time in the world. No one even close to him. he lost it. Bryant has plenty of time. And the Lakers continue to dominate. And Phil... Yells it out, almost another turnover. Weber does not get it off in time. Shot does not count. 
And that ends the first quarter. Hurting the Sacramento Kings five here in the first quarter. 14-point L.A. lead after one. 12 minutes into their first Western Conference Finals game and Sacramento found themselves trailing by 14 points after giving up 36 to the Lakers early. From there on, the Kings would settle in but never could climb out of the deep hole that they put themselves in. Sacramento Kings radio broadcaster Jason Ross. I think game one is one of the most under-talked about games of the series. Kings wasted a game. They wasted a game. And you can't waste a game when, I don't know if they were the underdog, but if you're even... And I don't know that the Lakers would say, well, they might say they wasted a game, but in this case, the Kings got drilled in the first quarter. They never led. It felt like the Lakers had been there and done that, and the Kings weren't ready for the moment. From the second quarter on, they were fine. They were too far behind and played even with the Lakers and ended up losing, I think, by like you said, by seven. But it, they wasted the first quarter and wasted a game that, yeah, we'll look at game four and game seven and other games. But game one, I think, is a game that doesn't get talked about enough on just a game that they really didn't have a chance to win, and they probably should have had they been really ready to go. The Kings tried to make a run late, scoring 30 points in the fourth quarter, but fell short 106-99, to continuing their ugly trend of losing home court advantage in every series of the 2002 playoffs. Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal dominated, combining for 56 of Los Angeles's 106 points. Doug Christie shares if the team was worried or discouraged after losing game one. You know, as a unit, it was almost like, okay, here we are. And we, we just we weren't mentally prepared for the moment. Uh, but leaving the building, nah, because truly, we knew we were a better team than them. And it, I, I mean, we played them, and that's what I mean by like the year before when we got swept, we were like, damn, we're close, man. I, I can feel it. Like, we could beat them. Then we came back, and like you said, we lose to them once, and then the next time we handle them, and I can't remember the rest of the regular season, but there, there was a tipping point in there where you go, you know what? Yep, we're good to go. So losing the first game, it was very disappointing, uh, more disappointing probably for our fans. But for us, nah, we were chomping at the bit to get right back at it because we knew that, that we were going to put it to them, and that's exactly what we did. Sacramento Kings guard and six-man Bobby Jackson. We kind of knew we was, it was going to be a seven-game series, um, and, and we knew we were going to for a dog fight. We knew we had to go to L.A. and win a game, and which we did, and, and so we end up getting home court advantage back uh, again, uh, but we just couldn't finish it out, and, and Game one was, you know, I think the layoff kind of hindered us a little bit um, and not having Taja. Um, so um, he stepped stuff in and, and, and did an amazing job with stepping in for uh, Taja. Um, but, you know, when you, when you go for one and you try to come in against the defending champs, you got to be at the top of your game. And we wasn't that game one. And so that's how they won it. Peja Stojakovic missed the first four games of the Western Conference Finals with an ankle injury that he suffered in Game 3 of the semifinals in Dallas. And when he would return, he would never quite be the same. Sacramento Sports Radio host and King superfan Carmichael Dave. I was crushed after that game. I'm not going to lie. I, we lost Game 1 at home after, after all the wins during the regular season, after marching through and taking care of everybody coming in. And here we were against the Lakers who swept us last year. And it was like rinse and repeat. Here we go. I know we're as good a team. I think we're a better team, but something uh, something wasn't working. And I, I I'm not gonna lie, man. After game one, you know, if everybody if 
if you got somebody sitting there, a fan telling you, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I knew they'd bounce back. I, I knew they'd bounce back and this would be a series. They're lying. I guarantee you 98% of anybody who, who came out of that game one after that home loss thought the same thing I did. Uh, we're going to get swept again. And here we go. And it's another offseason of garbage and BS. And we got to hear all the national pundits talk about how we're soft, how we just don't have what it takes, how we're losers. Chris Weber called a timeout in college, you know, whatever they throw at us just to just to do it. And that's what I was thinking after game one. I was not in a great mood. Grant Napier. I thought the series was over after one game, to be honest with you. And I said so on my radio show. I said, I, I, I said, I thought that game one loss on their home court would be devastating and too much to overcome because that's what you had worked all year for. Everything you had worked for was gone in 48 minutes. And I just didn't think the Kings were going to recover from losing that. I thought that was such a devastating blow that the Lakers handed the Kings. Obviously, I was wrong, but... You know, I just at that time, and I remember it vividly, I just thought, gee, everything you work for is now gone, and now you have to win at least one game on the road. Jerry Reynolds. Well, very disappointing, to be honest with you. I mean, I think it's a case of uh, really at that point, I'll be honest, I was thinking, you know, I don't know if we can beat these guys. Because, uh, you know, it's a case where I thought we did come out very tentative and didn't play with the confidence that we thought we would and thought we should. And, of course, the Lakers did. And, you know, that was the difference. They had been there, done it, and, and felt confident against us. And, and you know, we, you know, basically it's one of those things you can talk about feeling like you're better, but until you do it, you're not. And, and so that's kind of what I thought. Uh, just I just knew, too, that if we didn't win the next game, then it'd probably be a sweep again. The Kings desperately needed to get their swagger back, needed a win under their belt to not only avoid another sweep at the hands of the Lakers, but to also prove that they were the better team, as the regular season records indicated. So in Game 2, Sacramento was ready. They came to play early, corrected their mistakes from Game 1, and battled hard for a 96-90 victory. He's got 10, and he leads the Kings, who have led by as many as seven. The Lakers have led by as many as five. Weber's got eight. And Sacramento has a lead of four. Shaq had hit his last seven shots until that miss, and here comes Chris Weber at the other end. And Chris Weber, John, is hit two in a row. Well, and that shot is bad for him. I mean, he's a good shooter. I don't have a lot of problem with him even taking that jump shot. Here come the Kings. They are shooting 43% for the game from the floor. Weber. Christie, wide open for three. Here comes Fox to take on Turkoglu. Lost it inside, picked up by Bibby. It's a two-on-one. Bibby to Turkoglu. The last playoff road loss for the Los Angeles Lakers, June 16, 2000, at Indiana in the finals. 12 in a row. I mean, that That's is incredible. amazing. 12 road wins in a row in the playoffs. That's not too shabby. And Sacramento, hey, they've won four in a row on the road. Here they go, Fisher. A three. That's it, the Kings have won. Let's go to Craig Sager. Well, with Mike Bibby and Chris Weber, they're talking about this perhaps the biggest night in Sacramento Kings history. What does this win over the Lakers mean to you guys? 
you know, we know that we can play with them. And, you know, that's, we're going to take one game at a time. And, you know, we, we started better than we did last game. So, you know, we played hard all 48 minutes. Playing with them is one thing. Beating them is another. What does this win do for you? Well, uh, let's us know that uh, we're as good as we think we are and that uh, if we keep playing, we'll always have a chance to win the game. So it feels good, and this is the biggest moment for our fans, but hopefully we can take them a little bit further. All audio on today's episode courtesy of NBC. Chris Weber and Mike Bibby, who you heard there on the postgame interview, led the way for Sacramento. Weber scored 21 points and grabbed 13 rebounds. Bibby just behind him with 20 points and 8 assists. So the series headed to L.A., the Staples Center, where the Sacramento Kings knew that they would have to win at least one game if they wanted to win the series. The Kings took the floor in Game 3 on a four-game playoff road winning streak with all the confidence that they could make it five and silence the rowdy Laker crowd. Not only did Sacramento silence them, they shocked them to the core. The Kings built up a 25-point lead at one point, cruising to the 103-90 win and a 2-1 series lead. Here's Bryant. Dumas took the floor. Bibby able to recover. Evening of basketball here for the Lakers at Staples. After three, it's the Kings 75, the Lakers 52, and once again, the Lakers hearing the sentiments from the home crowd. It has been very ugly from the Lakers' point of view. In Sacramento, you can hear the cheering from here. So Jackson hits on all three free throws. This is the biggest lead of the night for the Kings. They're up by 25 points. Weber. That's a, a club shot by that Weber. That is what MVPs do. That is why they pay Chris Weber what they do. The Kings got to remember, they're in control of their own destiny. Just remain aggressive at the offensive. Oh, what a move by Bibby. Able to penetrate. Phil Jackson upset, and he takes a timeout. <laughs> Turn around is fair play. They throw one up to Shaq. Let's throw one up to Weber. 26 points for Chris Weber. We're down to 25 seconds remaining in this fourth quarter. And the Sacramento Kings will take a two-games-to-one lead on the Los Angeles Lakers. Final seconds. Here's George. The Sacramento Kings able to withstand the desperate rally of the Los Angeles Lakers in the fourth quarter. It was a late wake-up call for the Lakers, and the Kings, who once led by as many as 27, win it 103 tonight. Grant Napier. Well, I did both games three and four on the radio, and the thing I remember about game three is the Kings didn't just win game three. They embarrassed the Lakers in game three, and it was a clinic, and I actually, in the middle of the broadcast, uh, went to a break and said, and it's the Kings, you know, whatever the score was, and right here at the Los Angeles Public Library on the Sacramento Kings Radio Network. That's how quiet it was. I mean, the Kings literally, they took the entire crowd out of the game. They put on an absolute clinic in game three. Jason Ross. Everybody was excited. I, I stayed in L.A. during the game, so I, I was down there, and it went from, okay, I mentioned earlier, 
maybe you wasted game one, but from second quarter on, you felt you were as good as them, to game two winning, to game three dominating. I mean, just dominating. So now it's the belief of you've played three games, you probably wasted one or a quarter. You might be the better team. So the team was as confident as you could be. And even the thought was, okay, what if you lose game four? All right, you got home court. It's 2-2. That wouldn't be the worst. But could you add on? Could you get game four to really put the – put the screws on the Lakers. Jerry Reynolds. Oh, it's just amazing. You know, I mean, you're right. It's one of those things It's like, wow, what, what are we going to do with these guys? And then you, you get the, you get the game two. So, so you're feeling, okay, we're not back on track, but we know we can beat them because we did. And then I think, but like you say, the, the game down there and, and really had pretty good control of the game and, and just to, to be able to quiet the entire Staples crowd, you know, was was uh, was was a wonderful, wonderful feeling, and and you know to to walk out of the building thinking, you know, I think we're better than these guys, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was a case for uh, within a few days, you went from thinking I don't believe we're as good as these guys to thinking, yeah, we are. We're we're as good. We're better than these guys, and so just a uh, it, that's what uh, makes sports wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, momentum lasts until the next game or next play. Shaq and Kobe were contained to just 20 and 22 points, and no other Lakers starter scored more than eight in that game. Six Kings finished with double figures in the scoring column. Doug Christie. We were thinking that's exactly who we are. I mean, that's 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 who we are, guys, and that's that's what we're about. And to be honest, uh, we I mean, because when we're click, when we were clicking. There wasn't nothing anybody could do because we were solid enough on the defensive end to to understand we had high IQ players, so we would put guys in bad situations. We would rebound the basketball. We would contest shots. You know, there'd be some slippage here or there, but for the most part, we would do what coach wanted us to do. You know, we were intelligent enough to do that, and he would come up with with game plans that made sense, that that were sensical, that were were the right type of thing for us to be successful. So uh, that was one of those games where it's like, yep, here we are, and there's nothing that you're going to be able to do about it, and they couldn't. Even with the 2-1 to series lead and the dominating performance in Game 3, Carmichael Dave was still not convinced that Sacramento was going to pull it out. I was more emotionally invested in this series than any sporting event in my life. I'm talking Niners Super Bowls, Giants World Series, Florida State Football Championships, Nothing comes close to how absolutely hungry, ravenous would be a better word, I was for a championship. There was no point in this series that I thought the Kings were going to win it. Not one point, not one quarter, not one game. There was absolutely no point in this series where I felt like the Kings were going to win it. And part of that's my own defensive mechanism. But I sat there and I watched and after, after, you know, we're up 2-1, we got home court back. And I'm thinking, where's the other shoe? Where's the other shoe? What's it going to drop? What's going to happen? Are we getting screwed by the refs? Are we getting screwed by Shaq? Is somebody going to get hurt? What the hell is going on? Who's going to choke? That's all. I watched the entire series like you watch a horror movie between your fingers, just waiting, waiting for something to happen. 
This episode of the Locked on Kings podcast is brought to you by Sweat Block, the antiperspirant wipes that work like a charm. Doctor created and doctor recommended works for up to seven days per use. It's a dry shirt guarantee. If Sweat Block doesn't keep you dry, you get your money back. It's been featured and tested on the Rachel Ray Show by firefighters. If these wipes can handle their hot climate, it can handle yours. Bestseller on Amazon for the past 10 years. You can check out their over 13,000 reviews. Man, manufactured in the USA and very easy to get. Like I mentioned, you can get them on amazon.com. You can also get them at your local CVS pharmacy or get them today at sweatblock.com and use promo code locked on for 20% off. Get yourself the sweat block antiperspirant wipes and stay dry. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV all together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there's no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at DirecTV.com. That's DirecTV.com. Compatible devices are required. Content varies by package. Carmichael Dave's fears proved to be warranted as Game 4 would quickly transform from another King's showcase to Laker heroics and resurrection. Once again, Sacramento was off to a fantastic start, scoring 40 points in the first quarter and leading by 20 early. The Lakers slowly chipped away at the Kings' lead in the second quarter, but could never put together much of a run. However, momentum is a strange and cruel thing in the NBA, as a three-point buzzer beater for Lakers reserve Samaki Walker heading into halftime would spark a historic Los Angeles comeback. Jackson with the rainbow three, rebounded by Ori, taken out of the hands of Weber. Final seconds, Walker shooting for three. And this crowd is energized. They are fired up. They are ready for more. Mike Bibby does a good job of cutting off Kobe Bryant, thinking that the ball is going his way. But who would have ever thought that Samaki Walker, of all people, would knock down the three? The Sacramento Kings led by as many as 24. They're up by 20 at the quarter. And the Lakers... Putting a dent into that lead. Doug Christie. We started out that game beating the hell out of them again. I think we were up by 20 points in the first quarter. And then Samaki Walker hits the half-court shot that shouldn't have counted. And there was just kind of a weird feeling going into the locker room. But if you think about that, that's six quarters of beating the hell out of a team that's supposed to be the best in the league. Problem is, we felt like we were the best team in the league. And we were demonstrating it. With new energy from Walker's shot and the halftime break, the Lakers took it to the Kings in the second half, battling all the way back to within two points with 11 seconds remaining. That's when Robert Horry hit one of the biggest shots in his career, a basket that still gives Kings fans nightmares to this day. Trying to pull off the greatest comeback in playoff history in terms of making it back from a 20-point deficit. In the first quarter, looking to equal the record 
as the Lakers did it at Seattle back in 89. It's a two-point Sacramento lead. We're down to seven seconds. Bryant putting the move on Christie. Rebound O'Neal. Napier. Well, I was courtside doing the game on radio, and the thing I remember was that Robert Ori was directly between where I was and the basket. In other words, I saw the shot, and as soon as it left his fingertips, as I was announcing the game on radio, I had a sick feeling in my gut because, again, I was right on line with the shot because our broadcast position on the floor at the Staples Center was at the end of the scores table towards the Lakers bench. And so I had a perfect angle. And when Robert Ori took that shot, I knew that it was right on line and I just got a sick feeling. And then when that shot went in uh, and again, I've been doing the NBA for 32 years. I can't adequately describe what that felt like to be in that building and to see once again, the Lakers celebrating over the Sacramento Kings. It was a sickening feeling. And I have trouble even to this day watching a replay of that shot because it brings back uh, just a sickening feeling to me. Doug Christie. I had Kobe on the wing and I was thinking, I finally got you, but he kind of got by me and Vlade came over to help. And when he came over to help, he made him miss the shot. Then there was the tip, tip, and Vlade bats it out. And I guess, you know, I mean, he is Kobe Bryant, and he's one of the greatest ever. Uh, but not for Vlade coming over to help me. I, I'd get beat on that play. Carmichael Dave. Well, we're also forgetting Samaki Walker's shot. That should not have counted to beat the buzzer. It didn't beat the buzzer, the half-court shot at the half. Uh, that was that was one of the the nails in the coffin, and that rule was changed the following year. So you have the Samaki Walker shot, and then of course you have the Robert Ory shot. That that is that is the single worst moment in Sacramento Kings on court history. We've obviously dealt with tragedies off the floor that are far worse, but on court that was that was an absolute dagger. And yes, after that game, same thing. I'm depressed. I'm inconsolable. I hate Robert Ory. I hate the Lakers. I hate the NBA. I hate everything. And if you'd have told me at that moment, Dave, <clears throat> it's actually going to get worse, I truly wouldn't have believed you, but here we go. Jerry Reynolds. Over and over, I said it, but I mean, the media have never picked up on it, or the fans, is that Horry was out of position. Uh, they were down two points. Kobe drives baseline, 15-foot shot. They're down two. 
Uh, he misses. Shaq rebounds. Your power forward is still standing out past the three-point line. His butt needs to be on the going to the glass. And then, of course, Shaq shoots a little hook, and or he's still out there. And, uh, you know, I mean, Vladi couldn't get control of the ball. He, he bats it out, which normally would be the right play. But here a power forward standing there uh, when his team's down two guarding the backcourt. Uh, but it came to him, and he made the shot. So, <laughs> but, but I mean, it wasn't. It, it, it people, people forget. I mean, he had no business being there, <laughs> you know. And they, you know, and they want to criticize Lottie for not getting control of the ball. Well, he couldn't get control of the ball. If he could have, he would have. Uh, there's a guy named Shaquille O'Neal trying to f- battle for that s- second opportunity, you know. So it's, it's like, geez, uh, if you look at the replay, you'd see he's barely able to get a hand on it. And uh, anyway, so I'm still bitter about that on a hundred levels, but because I've even talked to Ori about it, and you know he said the same thing. He said, "Yeah, I just froze. I forgot to, you know, you know, to to go in and try to get an offensive rebound." <laughs> Doug Christie, power forwards weren't outside the three point. Like, what the hell are you doing out there? First of all, and to be honest, Vladi couldn't have passed him a perfect pass. Like, you know, Vladi is probably the best big pass. Uh, a uh, big passer in the history of basketball, at least one of them, but he couldn't even have threw him a chest pass perfect. I mean, the ball was right there. He walked into it, left, right, step, reach up. Uh, Webb is fully stretched out as Stretch Armstrong could be. I run over there at it, and he let it go. And when he let it go, I just went, damn, I think that's going to go in. And it did. Bobby Jackson. If you know Robert Horry, he's never – crashing the boards, especially in, in those type of situations. Um, he's always been a guy that, that, that stands out there on the perimeter and, and always looking for those kick-out threes, especially for offensive rebounds. And the pass was just right on – the tip-out was right on time and right on target. And, you know, most big, most power forwards, they down there trying to rebound. But Robert, Robert Horry was always on the perimeter. If you go back and you look at his career – He's always on the perimeter looking for those kickout threes. And it was just like those little detailed things that uh, we didn't really pay attention to. Uh, but he made a, a, a terrific shot. Uh, we competed our butts off, but, you know, we came up short. Jason Ross. Game four, I remember thinking, okay, the Kings are going to get the Lakers' best punch. And when the Kings did the exact same thing that they did in game three and they built the lead to 20 again, now it's starting to sink in, and I'm sitting there right next to Grant and to Jerry. I'm doing stats for the game, getting ready to go do post-game locker room, send uh, audio back for our post-game into the radio station. And I'm thinking, man, the Kings are they are way better than the Lakers at this point. I mean, at one point when they were just dominating them and crushing them, and then certainly the Lakers start their comeback, and you feel it. And when you get to the final moment, and I know this is a play that's talked about and will be forever on whether it's right or wrong, and people have different opinions of this, but Kobe's driving and gets right to the basket for, for basically the tie. Misses. Ball's bat around. Shaq gets a really good look. He misses. And I still think Vlade did the right thing. People will say, no, he didn't. I think he did. And Vlade, I know, will, will recite uh, 91 playoffs, I think, when Magic Johnson was his teammate and tipped the ball away. Got It just, it just rolled all the way down to the other end, and the Lakers ended up beating the Blazers because the Blazers couldn't get the ball in time. Well, nine of the ten people are in the paint. And Vlade just could not have sent it out more perfectly to Robert Ory. I mean, it's and, – and what I remember about being the post game as I go to each podium 
And Vlade says something like, well, that Robert Ori was lucky. Robert Ori took it like, wait a minute, he needs to see my resume here. It wasn't luck. Vlade didn't, in my opinion, didn't mean that Robert Ori's shot was lucky because Robert Ori can make that. It was the fact that a 6'10 power forward standing outside there and Vlade tips it right to him. That was the the fortunate part. I remember Weber running out as fast as he could, stretching out his arms. And then the only way I know how to describe it is I I think I hear Grant's call live, but I'm I'm you're so caught up in the moment. And it felt like as soon as you heard the roar of the crowd, I felt like my whole body filled with the roar. I don't know how else to describe it. You just it's like it all just filled up with the cheer and then my heart just sunk. And for a second you you just I mean, I'm stunned, I'm amazed, I'm floored, and then I have to gather my thoughts going, I've got to go into the King's locker room now. Grant Napier shares an interaction that he had with Vlade Divac after the heartbreaking loss. After that shot by Robert Ori, I had to go do the post-game show and all of that on the radio. So that took me some 15 or 20 minutes. And I remember walking into the King's locker room, and it was very quiet. And Vlade walks right up to me, and he said, don't worry. I told everyone that, you know, keep your heads up. He said, everyone in here had their heads down. I said, get your heads up. This series is not over. We're going back and we're winning game five. And I just thought it was so amazing that the guy that batted the ball out from under the basket that had ended up in Robert Ory's hand is the guy that is trying to get everybody up and to forget about it and to go back and win game five. Doug Christie also spoke on Vlade's leadership. I give credit to, to Vlade in a lot of ways because he would keep it lighthearted. And, you know, there would be a moment where we're like, damn. But by the time we got on the bus and we start talking to each other, it's like, we're really good, man. This is not a fluke. This like, if we started playing the game again, we're going to beat the hell out of them. That's, that was the mindset. Or it's going to be a really good game. Let me put it that way. May 28th, back in Sacramento, the Kings and the Lakers went at it again, tied 2-2. Two to two. The Kings knew that a loss again on their home floor would be devastating for their chances going back to L.A., but a win would guarantee one more home game before a lost series. There was no sign of the domination from games 3 and 4, as the Lakers clearly had new life and resolve after Horry's heroics. The game would go back and forth from start to finish, 8 ties and 13 total lead changes, leading to a neck-and-neck neck fourth quarter. He'll be able to toss it out to Christie. The shot clock at seven. Once again, O'Neal wisely stepped away as Christie was able to hit. The Kings with the ball down by three, coming up on four minutes remaining in the fourth quarter. Weber with the head foot. Fisher digging in as Bibby uses the pick. Here's Bibby going at O'Neal and a foul. Tripped up and Doug Christie picks up his six. So Christie is gone, and that's a blow to Sacramento because they like Christie defending on Bryant. Weber has given the Kings an 88 87 lead, and it's Turgolo defending on Bryant. Moving it right at him to the fairway. Yes! 89 88. Lakers, 30 points for Kobe Bryant. Kings within one. We have 40 
played by Jackson as the Lakers spread the court. Tony with the stop. And he's rejected by Eli. Two-second differential between the game clock and the shot clock. Turner, Weber to the crossover. Lost it. Kicked out of bounds, though, by Warren. With 11 and 4 tenths seconds remaining in the fourth quarter. Eight on the shot clock. It was Robert Horry and the Lakers that hit the big shot in Game 4, sending the Staples Center crowd into a frenzy. But in Game 5, it was Sacramento's turn and Mike Bibby's time to shine. Game number 5 coming down to the final seconds, as did Game number 4. But the Lakers have a one-point lead. To Bibby, has the open shot. Doug Christie. Adelman, give him credit. And then also give Chris credit because, you know, there's a lot of stars that would be like, nah, you know, I want to shoot the ball. But he used Chris as a decoy, and it was perfect because he passed him the ball. He comes off with a beautiful handoff, and Chris sets a a screen all at once that levels uh, Derek Fisher. And Mike gets his feet set straight up and down, reaches up and and knocks it down. Uh, It lived for the moment. And the place just uh, it, it went nuts, and we were able to win that game. Grant Napier. The energy in that building for that game was maybe as much as I've ever experienced at that old Arco Arena. It was a phenomenal game. It was back and forth. Every possession was a nail-biter. And the ball ended up in the guy that you really wanted to. Mike Bibby was the most clutch player on the Kings. If you needed a big shot, you wanted Mike to take that shot. Mike would not not necessarily make all the shots, but you knew that Mike would not melt under the pressure. He was not that type of guy. Mike was a clutch player. And, you know, again, it goes down as one of the greatest shots in the history of the Sacramento Kings. Carmichael Dave. Second biggest shot in Kings history. Some people will say uh, it's the biggest. Well, most people would say it's the biggest. I disagree. I think Kevin Martin's uh, buzzer beater uh, to beat the Spurs in game two, the last time the Kings were in the playoffs. That was a buzzer beater. Bibby's wasn't, but it's certainly not worth the argument. It's certainly in the annals of great shots in Kings history. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy, I didn't sit there watching the whole series angry. I saved that for after the games. During the games, I was ecstatic. I was rooting for this team full force. I was going nuts. Uh, I did enjoy in the moment. And when Bibby hit that shot, of course, there were thoughts in my head that, oh, my God, we're up 3-2. We're up 3-2. We've already proven that we can go win in L.A. And even if we don't, we have the best home court advantage in the league. All we need is to win one of these two games. We've beaten at home. We've beaten them on the road. It absolutely is possible. Mike Bibby was a hero throughout the Western Conference Finals and the NBA playoffs as a whole, but never more than in Game 5 when he scored 23 points and shot 52% from the field. 
Bobby Jackson. Uh, man, Mike Carroll does that game. You know, he was hot uh, from from start to finish, and you know, probably one of the best overall uh, shooting point guards in the league at that time. And you know, definitely the ball he he deserved to take that last shot. And you know, he wasn't called big big shot Bibby for a reason. You know, he came through in the clutch and he put the nail in the coffin for us. Jerry Reynolds also loved the moment, but did admit that the Kings got away with one. It was just one of the obviously big shots in Kings history, no question. And Mike Bibby's a clutch guy. Everybody knows that. Wanted that kind of shot, got the shot. Uh, One thing I always remember, quite honestly, Weber set a completely illegal screen to free up Bibby. And I was had a good view of it. And I was just so scared the officials were going to call it, although I do know that, you know, they're in those situations, a lot of times they will swallow their whistles, and thankfully they, they did that. And but Webb knew he had to get him open, and he did. And because Bibby had a good clean look at it, and of course when he has good clean looks, he is a true clutch guy. Jason Ross. It's so great. I mean, when it happens, you know there's more time. You know they still have Kobe. Shaq had fouled out, so you know it's going to Kobe, and you're thinking. Oh, man, they just lost to Robert Ory in that way. Is this going to happen again? But for Bibby, the isolated that moment, I, I think there's a lot of things in there because there's a play that the ball went out of bounds first, and a lot of people still say that should have been Laker ball. The Kings kept it. Uh, there's a lot of talk, obviously, about officiating for the entirety of the series. Some people think Weber set a moving screen there on Fisher, and when he drops him to free up Bibby. But the moment in and of itself is kind of back to if Weber is the star of the team, the ball gets to Chris He's willing to set the pick and hand the ball off to Bibby. Some people ripped Weber later like, oh, he was afraid of the moment. He made the right play. So I I just think that moment is awesome. And then Bobby Jackson having to guard uh, Kobe after that to still get the stop. And some people say, Bobby, you know, Kobe's jersey's tucked in before the play. Then it's untucked. Bobby said, yeah, I may have grabbed him, may have fouled him. So there's always there's all sorts of moments and. And the fact, though, that they won, and now you backtrack almost game by game, and you go, all right, should have probably done better in game one, but won game two, dominated game three, was dominating game four and lost, and then won game five. It's like, this series could be over, but it's not. It's 3-2. And I remember honestly saying this, going, wow, the only way they lose this is if they lose game seven at home. What a position to be in. Like, this is, they're in really, really good shape, and ultimately they weren't. Kings win Game 5 in dramatic fashion, 92-91, taking a 3-2 series lead back to L.A., where a desperate Lakers team would need the help of the officials in one of the most controversial NBA games and games period in the history of pro sports. Today's Locked On Kings podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Built Bar, and Built Bar likes to celebrate your freedom of choice. That's why they give you so many delicious flavors, all incredible and all healthy. They taste like candy bars. They're all covered in 100% chocolate, but you can get flavors like coconut, raspberry, my favorite mint brownie, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, and more. And you can find out what your favorite flavor is, because everybody has a favorite, by going on to Built.com and buying a mixed box. They'll send you a bunch of different flavors. You can pick your favorites. Then when you order your second box, you make sure to order the ones that you love. And all these bars, like I said, are healthy. 17 to 18 grams of protein, calories ranging from 130 to 180, only 4 to 5 grams of sugar, and only 4 to 5 grams of net carbs. Amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Right now, if you go to Built.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, you'll get 15% off your order. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON for 15% off at Built.com. 
The Locked On Kings podcast is brought to you by our friends over at betonline.ag. It's that time of the year again. All eyes are now turning to football as teams are back on the gridiron to start the football season. Preseason happening right now. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this season. Get all the updated odds, props, and contests, including the online's biggest half-million-dollar NFL Mega Contest and the world's largest $200,000 NFL Survivor Contest, open now at BetOnline. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 100% welcome bonus by using promo code Locked On, And be sure to take advantage of their opening day super promo, meaning you make a bet on Thursday, September 9th, the season opener between the Super Bowl champion Buccaneers and the Dallas Cowboys. And if you lose, your wager will be refunded up to $25 for new customers only when signing up and using promo code NFL100. From football to basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait and take advantage of all the great offers today for the 2021 season at Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. In Game 6, Shaq was doing what he does, banging around inside and forcing defenders to send him to the line. O'Neal finished the game with 41 points, hitting a surprising 13 of 17 free throws. You could see the desperation in Kobe's stat line as well, 31 points and 11 rebounds in 44 minutes. Thanks to Shaq's physicality and some already questionable whistles, the Kings started the fourth quarter in significant foul trouble. Starting center Vladi Divac was on the bench with five fouls. Backup center Scott Pollard was on the floor with five fouls. And Chris Webber had three fouls of his own. That's when all hell broke loose. And when what many basketball fans around the world would only describe as a screw job began. Bobby Jackson played by an angle problem for several games this series. setting an illegal pick, so the Lakers will take over. Uh, the, the, the Kings are going to have to play through the tough officiating, and they're going to have to find a way to win. Pollard remaining. O'Neal, look out and try to buy some time. Lonnie Ebox had a foul. Scott Pollard with number six. Not a foul, I'm yeah. sorry. O'Neal coming up short and a foul. The late whistle, but Demos is hit with his fifth. And that drops an ovation from this crowd. Coming across the middle, he gets number six against Scott Pollard, and then he will pick up number five. One of the problems is they are letting Shaq begin his move and then reacting to it, and the whistle's going against them. They're all throwing their hands in the direction of the officials. Shaq is wearing them out, but if the officials would keep an eye on the footwork of the big guy, I think that's a traveling violation, that last move, where you come across the lane and get into one move and then take your one-and-a-half steps and then stop and then go the other direction, and they don't call traveling. What's a defender to do? Robert Ory's 
five apiece on Weber and Devots for the NBA Finals, waiting for the winner of this series. Corey thought he was fouled, and now Bob Delaney with the whistle, and the foul is called on Devots. That is this number six. That gentleman is beyond belief. Bloody Devots has fouled out 31 minutes, 12 points, 12 rebounds. Say what you will about the whistles, Bill. You look at Sacramento, 42%, and the Lakers, 46 They cannot put this team away. The resolve of Sacramento is every bit as big as the Lakers. Here's Bryant playing the ball on Christian, rejected and fouled. <laughs> Mike Bibby can't believe it. Mike Bibby just went to the ground and said, what is happening here? Now Fox down on the post. Fox is fouled by Pergolo. Hits back to the line. That was an interesting call. Taking it to the rim, and it's a one-point game. So Hito Turgalo is able to hit on the drive, and here's Christie on the foul once again. Kobe Bryant will go to the line. Kobe Bryant ran over Mike Bibby to get that ball, and Mike shake it up. The Kings did the right thing. They attacked the rim to get the score. Bibby is here in front. He's trying to hook, and Kobe's trying to wait, bust wait, through. Wait, wait. Trying to hook. He's standing there. But he put his arm around his waist. Now Kobe's trying to break through, but on coming through, that's when he catches him with that elbow. But Bibby was making the smart play. Let me locate. You see his arm underneath, and then he just gets handled right in the right in the nose, and his nose is bleeding. And they made them use their last timeout. That 20 second is gone. Blonde fouls out. Pollard fouls out. Weber quickly picks up five fouls while having points taken off the board. Mike Bibby is elbowed in the nose by Kobe, all leading to a 106-102 Laker win. Carmichael Dave. I think I was a lot like Rick Adelman. The game is still, that fourth quarter is on YouTube. You can look it up. And I would, I would, in addition to looking at all the terrible fouls, you see a look on Rick Adelman's face about halfway through the game. And I forget who the call was on. It might have been when Pollard fouled out. But Adelman doesn't even argue. He's on the bench, and he has this look on his face like he, he just has no energy. He has this disgusted surprise. It's a, mister, a mixture of disgusting and, and, and being surprised. And he, he's just sitting there with his mouth open like, I cannot believe what I'm even seeing right now. And that's exactly how I felt. Watching it progressively get worse, I think 27 free throws by the Lakers into the fourth quarter, it, whether it was a fix or whether it was just the worst officiating we've ever seen for a quarter in that type of moment, we'll probably never know. There's certainly rumors out there, some more strong than others. But the fact that you had national figures coming out who had no ties to the Lakers or Kings or even the NBA saying that it was a screw job, it it doesn't matter whether it was a conspiracy or not. The referees screwed the Kings out of that game. It was the worst officiated game fourth quarter in NBA history 
they've literally made movies out of it or, or ESPN, you know, E60s out of it. Um, I, I don't know what to say after that other than there's a reason why Kings fans are very cynical and the root of that cynicism lies in that Robert Ory shot, that Samaki Walker shot that shouldn't have counted, and that fourth quarter in game six, which absolutely decimated this team mentally. Check out my Twitter account at MattGeorgeKHDK for a thread of the facial expressions of Kings players who are fully aware of the apparent referee bias. The Lakers shot 27 free throws to the Kings' nine in the final 12 minutes. Bobby Jackson. We, we felt like we were getting screwed royally, uh, but it was against the defending champs, you know, and I think at the end of the day, we had a chance to win, um, regardless of if, if we felt like there was eight against five, um, but I think we went up by 20 real easy in that game, and then they came storming back with all the foul calls and the free throws, so it was an up-and-down game, and, and it allowed us to know that, you know, we continue to, to, to fight through all the odds and the adversity uh, and continue to stay together as a group and not give up and give them my best shot. Doug Christie. In a moment, to be honest, some of these games, Matt, to be honest with you, they're, they're pretty painful, so I haven't really gone back and watched. I've seen different pieces of them. But um, in a moment, you're like, what the hell? You know, bad call. But you're not thinking like, man. But I guess kind of you could be because you're like, what the hell is going What is that, man? He just threw an elbow at him and it fouls on us. And, you know, it, you go on and on. But it, it was it was it was weird, man, because we, you know, every one of our centers fouled out of the game. And, you know, Shaq is playing as physical as he possibly can. Uh, but you, you give credit to the Lakers. I mean, it was a championship mentality. They came in and. They got it done as as much as um, we might not have liked it, uh, but yeah, it, it you know it just it didn't necessarily feel right, but it, it is what it is, man. Grant Napier. Well, Bob Delaney, Dick Pavetta, and uh, and and uh, I think I can't remember Bernhardt's first name right now, but they Ted Bernhardt, I believe, those were the officials. And you know, sometimes when you cover a team, you 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 have to be careful that you're not so entrenched that you can't look at the game objectively, but it is to this day considered by those that had no rooting interest for the Lakers or the Kings. All right. The worst officiated game in the history of the NBA. And it so happened to be on the Lakers court in game six. Now with that said, I don't believe in a conspiracy. I've never believed in that. And to this day, I still don't believe in that, but it was, a just a disgraceful performance by those three officials and Bob Delaney in my opinion had the worst of the three and the elbow that Kobe Bryant delivered to Mike Bibby again was right in front of me it was right in front of Bob Delaney Bob Delaney was looking at it did not call it and we could go on and on and on but even with that said okay even though that game was so poorly officiated and the series should have ended right then and there, it was 3-3. The series was not over. Jerry Reynolds. You know, I don't want to get into the uh, conspiracy thing because I don't have any evidence. But what I do know, and, I've, and I just absolutely know, that I've watched that quarter, the fourth quarter happen a lot. And, and, and if, it's, if it wasn't any conspiracy, it was clearly the worst officiated quarter that I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, and that goes back 
coaching junior college when we hired a couple of guys to screw the other team, and then we'd go to their place, and they'd hire two guys to screw us. <laughs> you know, and that's what it looked like. <laughs> that that is, it was uh, just ridiculous that because we all know that there's ten or fifteen missed calls a game, and usually they come pretty close to evening out, and and most of us understand that. that is, but this was a case. There was about twenty calls in the fourth quarter, and every one of them uh, went against the Kings, and and the thirteen or fourteen were were just absolute missed missed calls. You know, no other way you could spin it. Jerry shares the anger that the Kings players felt before returning to Sacramento for Game 7. Oh, no question, there was a lot of complaining about it. And, and looking back, I honestly, you know, and certainly I was one of them, but I mean, the play, everybody was, was just been out of shape about it, as, as they ever had every right to do. And I, I, I'd have to say that looking back and second-guessing, probably, you know, a case could be made that we allowed too much to be made of it at that time. Because it served no purpose, you know what I mean. And so, but by the time the seventh game came, it, it was, you know, it, it was past, and and the guys were more than ready to play, and and definitely felt they were the better team. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think the, there was a lot of confidence going into Game Seven. I really did. Uh, you know, from what I could see and feel, that the guys just felt that, hey, uh, you know, this we're at home. And uh, this is what we played the season for, and 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 we got screwed <laughs> in Game Six, and so now we'll get them in Game Seven, and I think that's that was the mindset by that time. You couldn't wish for better as an NBA fan. What's more dramatic than a Game Seven between the two biggest rivals in the NBA? Arco Arena was packed with 17,000-plus fans on hand to see who would win the series and, for all intents and purposes, the 2002 NBA championship. Every TV set in Sacramento, Los Angeles, and most around the world were tuned into NBC for the dramatic conclusion to this epic war. To nobody's surprise, Game 7 was close from start to finish with 16 ties, 19 lead changes, and of course, a trip to overtime. We're ready for the opening tip for the Lakers. It's their 17th Game 7 since moving to Los Angeles four decades ago. 
They've won 10 of the previous 16, including the win over Portland in the conference finals two years back. That game saw the Lakers come from behind. They were down by 15 in the fourth quarter. d and O'Neal controlled by Sacramento. 23-22. Sacramento lead with a minute and a half gone by in the second. O'Neal gets a deep triple teamed. It counts. And the foul. Kobe Bryant now has 13, and it's a 39-35 Laker lead. Here's Weber getting position. O'Neal did well to get to that pass. And the foul. Good hands by Shaquille O'Neal. Christine will count. Yes, it does. And the foul. The championship is right there, under 10 minutes. Shot clock to seven. Ori for three. Robert Ori from downtown. So Ori, 13 points, eight rebounds. Lakers up, 81-78. Here's Jackson for three. Yes. Maybe now being played by Bryant. Uses the pick. That's by O'Neal. Here's Bibby. So Pedro Stoyakovich came up with air. Wow. Ten and four, ten seconds remaining in this fourth quarter. Ten point four remaining. Sacramento does have one timeout left. Weber played by Hawley, and then a foul is called. A foul on Bryant, number five, with eight and two ten seconds. To go. Mike Bibby, Lakers do have timeouts for him. No problem for Bibby. He's tied the game at 100. The Lakers and the Kings tied at 100. Hawks will pull in. Or out of five seconds. Fisher. Here's Weber over O'Neal. Just Weber. Fisher using the pick. Ori gets it down low to O'Neal. Nice delivery from Robert Ori. Shaq now has 31. Christie to throw in. And it's broken up. So that will do it. The Los Angeles Lakers winning here in Sacramento. In overtime, 112 to 106. The Los Angeles Lakers defeated the Sacramento Kings 112-106 to to advance to the NBA Finals, where they would sweep the New Jersey Nets to become the NBA champions for the third consecutive year. Carmichael Dave. Game six is the worst screw job in NBA history. Uh, and I mean this, I hate saying it. I, I say this with all respect in the world. In fact, we work in 
are around and have become friends, Matt, with some of the guys on that team. Game seven was a massive choke job. Now, I put an asterisk there because this team was mentally gutted. So I, maybe one person says choke, another person says uh, mentally out of it. But either way, I think all of those players would agree that you have to come, you have to put that out of your head and you have to be strong enough to say, we have home court advantage. It's a one-game winner-take-all. We have the best fans in the NBA. We're going to do this. The problem is, is that the mentality of that team, in my opinion, was not strong enough to overcome that. And sometimes in order to win a championship, you have to overcome something unfair. You have to overcome adversity. I still have the box score in a frame in my house. Matt, they were 16 of 30 from the free throw line. They were 2 of 20 from behind the arc. And if you go back and watch that game, and I don't suggest you do, some of those misses were off the side of the backboard. They were they were they weren't just misses; they were absolute bricks. Their heads weren't in it. Of course, they wanted to win. Of course, they wanted to compete, but it just wasn't the same team. And here's what's crazy about it: the game went to overtime. They went two of twenty from behind the arc. They missed. 14 of 30 free throws, and they still took the Los Angeles Lakers at their peak to overtime. You just got to think. Shaquille O'Neal in that in that game six, by the way, that was so fixed, at one point, Matt, Shaquille O'Neal was 13 of 16 from the free throw line. 13 of 16 from a guy who could barely hit water if he tossed it out of the boat when shooting free throws. But guess what? Shaquille O'Neal took advantage of the situation, unfair for the Kings as it was, and he capitalized on it. The Sacramento Kings, during adversity in Game 7, did the absolute opposite. They choked in that situation, again, understandably so, and I say that with love. And that's the difference between winning a championship and not winning a championship. So, yeah, they got screwed, but they also choked, and that's how I balance it. Either way, it's a nightmare. Grant Napier. You played all year. Starting in the end of October, beginning of November, you battled 82 games to get the extra game at home. That's what the whole year was about. And so now you're there and you're 48 minutes away. And in this case, more, you were 53 minutes away from going to the NBA finals. There were a few things that you knew going into game seven in Sacramento. The first thing you knew, the Lakers were not going to beat themselves. If you were going to win the game, you would have to win it. The Lakers weren't going to do you any favors. And when you look back at how poorly game six was officiated, that had nothing to do with game seven. You can't blame the refs for missing 14 free throws. And the Kings, the good free throw shooters, were missing free throws. Was it, was it pressure? Was it the moment got too big for them? I can't answer that question. What I do know is that in game seven, on your home floor, to miss 14 free throws in a game that goes to overtime, that's a killer. Also, in that fourth quarter, Chris Weber got a technical foul. And you think about little things like that. One point making such a huge difference. To this day, the Kings cannot blame the officials for losing that series. They have to look in the mirror and say they missed 14 free throws on their home floor in a deciding game to get you to the NBA Finals. And I know because I talked to almost all the players that played on that team, that still eats at them to this day. Bobby Jackson. Well, you know, you just don't make mistakes. You know, you can't beat yourself when you're playing 
a good team uh, like the Los Angeles Lakers. And I think the biggest thing for us is, you know, that was probably the best officiated game out of all seven games, that game seven. So, like I said, we, we kind of came up short and we didn't handle our business. Uh, we missed 14 free throws. Uh, we missed wide open jump shots where we shot air balls. And so it's just like w- when you're playing that type of team, you just got to minimize as many mistakes. You got to capitalize, especially at the free throw line. And we didn't do that. And so um, out of all those games, Game one was officiated pretty well. Game two was officiated pretty well. Six uh, was tough because we love we lost those two last games, and uh, we felt like that uh, those two last games played a huge part in giving them confidence and the swagger to come into Arco and beat us. Doug Christie. I remember running out on the floor with so much emotion that tears were in my eyes. You know, it was just one of those moments that and and that's where you know they had I think the upper hand because they had been in those moments before so controlling your emotions and breathing and all the things that you need to do in that type of moment I I don't really recall a, a whole bunch of it I just remember it was one of the most incredible environments that that I I had ever experienced and had ever been in and you know in 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 many ways, I think that that affected my personal performances, the inability to kind of center myself the way that I know that I would as I studied basketball and studied playing and a lot of different stuff and, and learned uh, a lot of things that I teach my athletes that I wish I would have known then that when I heard Kobe talk about basketball and I was thinking, wow, that's how you were digesting that moment. I was not digesting it that way. I, I digest the moments now that way because I've learned a lot of different things. Um, but it was, uh, you know, every every day in Sacramento during that time was most incredible, man, because you would get up and whether it was driving by Carl's Jr. on Douglas Boulevard and people out there sleeping with the line around the block trying to get bobbleheads or pulling up to the arena and people already there like, I'm getting there early because I got got to but they're already there just waving and hollering and it was just an incredible environment and uh but at the same time one of the most painful days because i didn't even uh talk after the game i just walked straight to my car in my uniform and i that it was that was tough man i I never expected to lose leaving that arena no there wasn't there wasn't a doubt in my mind Jerry Reynolds. You know, it is a case where, you know, and, and I, I, you know, you hear both sides of it. People say, well, you know, they got screwed. Well, yeah, I think they did. And, and but they had game seven and, and that's also true. Uh, and they didn't play as well as they should have and, you know, did not make free throws, missed some airballed some easy shots, uh, didn't play as well as they could have. And of course, Shaq made his free throws for God's sakes, which never happens. But but just just to be completely straight on the thing, I think my feeling is is just this: that with reasonable officiating, game six, game seven doesn't happen. So so that's that's the best way to me, the fairest way to look at it, because the Lakers shouldn't have won game six, and it would the season the thing would have been over. Now to say, well, the Kings could have still won it. Well, yeah, they could have, but they by rules of the game, as as I understand them, that. It shouldn't have got to that. It, it was a it, the series would have been over, and the Kings would have played 
a New Jersey, and people can say that's sour grapes or I'm an old curmudgeon. I don't really give a crap because I know that series, the Kings deserve to win it. And not to say, you know, because I think is a case where the overall Kings team was better than, than the Lakers overall team at that at that particular junction, even though they had two players clearly better than anybody that the Kings had. Jason Ross. Missed opportunities. I mean, again, it's it's game six, it's game seven, it's game one. I mean, uh, game four, the, all of the ones you lose, you try to figure out why. Now, one wasn't as close, but I still talked about the wasted beginning of that game. I think if the Kings were locked in from the tip, they might have won game one, and maybe uh, you just don't know how this goes. Robert Ory's shot doesn't go. Maybe you're up 3-1 and you end it in Game 5. I, I, you just don't know. Game 6 officiating, that game still was close. So but Game 7, again, it's your home floor. It's the best arena. It's the best fans. They've got the two best players, but you had every opportunity, and you know you didn't get it done in regulation. You missed all the free throws. Shaq was much better at the line that day. That's That hurts. Um, and then the overriding thing that I've always said about this series that I think is underreported, Kobe and Shaq are the best players on the floor. Chris Weber's a close third. Pacia's jersey's in the rafters. He didn't play until game five. He came off the bench in game five, game six, game seven. Put a lake, it, probably not as good as, he's not as good as Kobe, but put Ori on the out for five games. Put Rick Fox out for four games, excuse me. Uh, Derek Fisher, and a key play, Stojakovic is a great player. He doesn't play game one, game two, game three, game four. Comes off the bench in game five, game six, and game seven. I think that's a huge deal. And, to me, in the playoffs, it's a lot of times it's the best team. You start with the most talented team that's the healthiest. Those two teams were about as even as it gets. That's a significant injury to be out for four of the games. And then play five, six, and seven, but he's not playing 40 minutes a game. You're, you're starting power a small forward. So I still And Hito was great. Hito was really good in the series, but Hito off the bench and Peja starting, I think would have made a world of difference, but it, was, it is what it was, and Peja had every opportunity to have a big shot, and he had an air ball in the corner, and I would give all the money I have for Peja to take an open three, and he airballed it. it just, I, don't, I don't have the answer as to why it happened. The Sacramento Kings never got another chance at the Lakers in the playoffs, nor have they made it to the Western Conference Finals since their seven-game war in 2002. Doug Christie shares what the late, great Kobe Bryant told Peja Stojakovic before he passed away. Way he spoke with Peja, and this was even well before the passing, years before, and, and he told Peja, he said, you know, if you guys would have beat us, you would have, you probably would have won a few in a row because there's a confidence that you don't know about that comes with winning it. Carmichael, Dave, and Jason Ross talk about the fallout from that lost series in 2002 that has had a drastic effect on the Sacramento Kings over the last 18 years. If they win in 2002, does that completely change things? Yeah, it does. You're an NBA champion. What does that mean? Well, let's let's start with the fact that they would have gotten a new arena built. There never would have been any sort of relocation. There never would have been any any fight for the team in all the years we went through that, which in some cases the team is still catching up for. You would have had a different culture. You hopefully would have built on that culture. It just would have been a completely different environment, and the history of this team would look absolutely different. There's probably 100 layers, if not more. From that fallout, from that carnage, from that uh, most recent story is Rudy Tomjanovich getting into the Hall of Fame. Good, good coach, two titles. Rick Adelman has almost double the amount of wins as as Rudy Tomjanovich. He doesn't have an NBA championship. Rudy G has two. Rick Adelman lost in two finals, lost to the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. If he has a championship, there's no, and I think he'll get to the Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Famer. I think the Kings have a new arena. 
I think the Kings probably have the new arena in Natomas, honestly. So you could argue maybe we're better in that situation. I believe the Maloof still own this team. I believe that um, Rick Adelman would not have been gone. I think there's maybe another title in there. I think there's probably a statue of the greatest show on court or a slash Bibby one as well with that. Um, Weber would be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I just There's so many different things from that. And then do the Lakers get – well, they wouldn't have had three in a row. And maybe is Shaq and Kobe looked – they're still great and they're legends. They're Hall of Famers, but – what did it do for them, and who else did, would the Kings have kept out of it? It's just it, it's fascinating to think what it would have done. Um, and then some people say get over it. Well, I don't know that you do. And to me, even in present day, as much as if the Kings were to win one and beat some version of the Lakers to do it, it would be so great, but they didn't beat that version when it mattered the most. They beat them in plenty of games and regular season games and some playoff games. But they couldn't beat Phil Jackson and him taunting the Kings and Shaq and him taunting the Kings and Kobe and him tormenting the Kings in his play. They just didn't beat that group when it mattered, and that's what um, I think myself and a lot of other people will never get over. In 2016, at the final game inside Arco Arena, legendary Kings head coach Rick Adelman returned and spoke about the 2002 series. Everybody talks about the sixth game and talks about all this stuff, but in reality, you know, we had a chance to win it in the seventh game. And it wasn't anything to do with, with except for us missing free throws. I thought we were the better team, but, you know, Mark was the, the true champion is we opened the door for them and they came through hard and they took it away from us. So I don't I don't think about it, I don't regret it. I just think that was a great series and we had a great team. I regret not getting to the next level because this place would have really allowed them. Mm-hmm. Today, both Bobby Jackson and Doug Christie still have connections with the Sacramento Kings, along with fellow teammates Vlade Divac and Peja Stojakovic. The 2002 series is still painful for Christie to relive and remember, but he shared that he will always be thankful for the opportunity to play on that stage against one of the greatest teams of all time in front of the loyal Sacramento fans. I wish truly that I could have, like I said, centered myself to appreciate the moment a lot more than I was able to at that particular time. But it was nothing like it. I mean, it was the show and we were performing at the highest level versus some of the best talent that the NBA has ever seen. But we were coming at them in a way that is a beautiful form of basketball, and in my opinion, the highest level of basketball, and that's five-man basketball, where the ball moves and we play for each other and we figure out ways to get each other involved and all the different things that come along with what uh, the greatest show on court was. Uh, And to play in front of those fans, it was one of the greatest honors um, that I've ever been bestowed to be honest with you, because the reciprocation of joy and happiness and appreciation, they, they brought it every single night. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. I, I just, what I, I call it always when people say, how do you describe it? I, I call it basketball nirvana. It was the, the greatest form that I've personally ever been involved in. And uh, when you add the fans in there in that environment, 
it was it was second to none. There's there's been replicated with Miami White Hot and Golden State, uh, you know, passing the ball and shooting and uh, the the quote unquote beautiful game from San Antonio. But make no mistake about it, the the greatest show on court was the the first. Bobby Jackson, now an assistant coach with the Kings, is equally grateful. I agree with Doug. That was a Nevada that allowed us to be a part of history to play against arguably one of the best teams in NBA history uh, and to take them to game seven and give them all that we had, you know, it was amazing. And to be a part of that, um, it it shows you the dedication and and the fight that we had within each other um, and to play with arguably two of the best players to ever walk on the floor and play in this game, you know, it, it says a lot about us also as a as a team and, a, and an organization. Thank you for tuning into this audio documentary, reliving one of the most special and painful years in Sacramento Kings history. For myself as a diehard fan that was just seven years old when the 2001-2002 season took place, experiencing the journey again and putting together this mini-series has been emotional, therapeutic, and heartbreaking all over again. If you enjoyed this series, please share it with your friends and fellow basketball fans, and please leave a review for the Locked on Kings podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments, stories, or thoughts on the 2001-2002 Sacramento Kings season that you want to share, please tweet them to me at MattGeorgeKHDK or email me mgeorge at saclocalmedia.com. The Locked on Kings podcast will return with regular programming soon. Until then, my name is Matt George. Thank you for listening to 2002, the three-part miniseries remembering the Sacramento Kings' great and terrible year, presented by the Locked on Kings podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network.